Okay, well, last week we uh, talked about Matthew 17, 14 through uh, 27. And uh, we talked about uh, atonement a little bit and, and the fact that the people who killed Jesus were the sinners. And uh, God's part in that was taking his hand of protection off of his son and allowing sinners to do that. And that pleased him in the sense that it was securing the salvation of people who would trust in him, repent of their sins. We talked about prayer and fasting a little bit. <coughs> and uh, So let's, let's move on to Matthew 18, and we're going to go through verse 14 today. Okay. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowning, drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? A man has a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray. Does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? If he should find it, I surely I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. Okay, so the, the disciples come to Jesus asking him this question. If we were to go to one of the other accounts, this, you'd see they were talking about it on the road, on the way. And um, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Um, and th so they're concerned about who is the greatest. And of course, the, in their mind here is this idea that Jesus going to set up his kingdom on earth right then. That was what's what I think is in their mind right now. Okay, that's why they're asking this question. Uh, it's interesting because that's basically what the Pope claims to be. He claims to be the representation of Christ, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven that's on earth right now. Uh, so it's interesting that they would ask this, and it's interesting what Jesus would respond to this. I mean, you wouldn't see the Pope uh, humbling himself like a little child. Uh, you wouldn't see the Pope washing people's feet below him. You wouldn't see him doing stuff like that. Um, so in order to answer their question, he took a little child, to him, called a little child to him and set uh, him in the midst of them. So this little child, this word little child here um, is Pidon, Pidon, and it's used many times in the scriptures. It's used to refer to babies. We see this uh, spoken of, of baby Jesus. In Luke 2, 17, 21, 27, and 40. It's all about baby Jesus in Luke 2. 
Uh, we see this word used about John the Baptist as a baby in Luke 1, 59, 66, 76, and 80. So all throughout Luke 1, you see it talking about John the Baptist, the same word being used here. You see it used of baby Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty three. You also see it used of a girl who was healed in Mark 5, and a boy who was healed, which we talked about last week, but it's in Mark's account, Mark 9. So if we talk about anyone basically from baby all the way up to a uh, young child. So we're talking about before the age of puberty, basically, uh, someone who's a young child, a little child, and this little child believes in Jesus. Okay, that's the one that's referring to here. So I think that would rule out babies in this this case. It'd rule out people like, you know, even Elijah's age. Uh, but it goes to show you that children can believe. Children oftentimes do believe, but they must be raised properly to come to that conclusion. Okay? He took a little child and set him in the mist, and he basically sets up his little child as the example. Now, what contrast do you see here with him taking a little child, which Calvinism calls a child of wrath, and sets him in the midst of them and says, this is your example. How ironic, how contrary is that to the Calvinistic understanding of what a child is like, what a child is. This is the example Jesus is saying. But the Calvinists would say, that, that, that's a child of wrath. It's born a sinner. Totally depraved. That's a complete and utter contrast to what Jesus says about children. And you see it again in Mark, uh, 19, 13, uh, Matthew 19, 13, and 14. You see the same thing there. How he sets them up as the example. And so he says, unless I, I, I surely I say to you, unless you are converted... And become as little children, you by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the word converted here is a Greek word, strafo. And it means, and here's the definitions I get from my, my Greek dictionary here, my lexicon. The first definition is change the position of something relative to something else by turning. Change the position of something and relative to something else by turning. Sound like repentance, huh? So they're pointing this way. Relative to something, whatever that something may be, and they're turning away from it. So maybe this is sin, and God's over here, and they're relative to this, they're turning away from it. Relative to this, they're turning towards it. They're turning towards Him. That's what conversion is. It also means to turn around, to turn toward. It's good. To turn something into something else. Uh, Revelation 11.6 uses this term, strafo, and it's turning water into blood. And so I would liken this to 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone's in Christ, it's a new creation. All the old things have passed away. Behold, all has become new. So he's changing a sinner into something else. Not leaving him a sinner. He's changing him into something else. Or her into something else. So that, that's what the word converted means. So you must be changed. You must be different than you are to be converted. You must become different. It's not something you, you do on your own strength. You must make the choice to do this, but it's an inward change that God brings forth through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and become a new creation. So in the midst of our doctrine of free will, we must make sure we get that in our heads. That, uh, you know, this is the Holy Spirit's involved in this. Uh, regeneration isn't monergistic in either sense. It's not monergistic that God's only doing it, it's not monogistic that we're only doing it. It's synergistic, meaning God and man cooperating together. Man submits, God converts. 
Matthew 11.25, Jesus says this, At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, and have revealed them to babes. Now, when we talked about that scripture, um, we talked about how God doesn't choose who's going to be a babe and who isn't. And we see again here that God, Jesus is commanding them to become like little children. So it's their obligation to become like little children, and it's only those who are babes or little children who will see these things because God has hidden them from the wise and prudent and has revealed them to babes. That's who he's chosen to reveal them to. But each person will choose for themselves whether they're going to be that or not. So become as little children. Well, what does that mean? Most think about little children for a second. Uh, I, I was, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about my little children. Uh, they're humble. They're small. In every way, they're small. Uh, I, I can't remember back to that age, but I, I can't imagine what it'd be like to be looking up to someone like this all the time. You're always looking up there. Where you go? You know, I, I don't know what that, I can't remember what that's like. But they're small, they're humble, they're looking up to someone, to everyone, basically. They're completely dependent. I mean, even up until you know, some people up until college for some of them. You kick them out into the real world, they're not going to last. They're not going to survive. They're completely dependent in every way. For food, for clothing, for shelter, for education. They come to this world ignorant. They don't have the knowledge until you give it to them. Um, protection. They're helpless. And they're teachable. They're teachable. So these, these are the characteristics of a, unless you become as little children. And that's the way we should be in relation to God. We, we should be humble. We should be small. I'm little. He's great. Uh, completely dependent upon him. Helpless and, and, and teachable. In every sense of the word. That's what we're to be. Become as little children. And if we aren't converted, if we aren't changed, if we don't become as little children... Well, here's the consequence. You'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. No means. No means. It's a condition to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we see that unless you become a little child, you can't even understand what the Bible says because that's part of Matthew 11, 25. That's who he's revealed the truth to. To babes. Not those who are high-minded and think they know everything. They think they're the authority. But those who submit to God in humility. And so we must humble ourselves. We must, that's how someone becomes, that's the process of becoming converted. Humbling themselves. Realizing their helpless state. That they're, they need God. And that's the kind of person who will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And it's complete and utter opposite of what the disciples were thinking. Complete and utter opposite of what the disciples were thinking. And, and, and Jesus did tell them later on that they would sit on 12 thrones. And of course, Jesus is, is taken away from that, and uh, Matthias or Paul will be sitting on that throne, I'm sure. But that wasn't the point. Even if they were to sit on thrones, even if they were to be in leadership over other people, they needed to have this state of mind, this state of their heart, to be humble, to be as little children. You know, I mentioned this a second ago. Let me just read it to you. John 13, 
This is where Jesus is uh, washing the disciples' feet. And this is the first thing that came to my mind when, he was, when I was reading this. And uh, we'll start in verse 12 of John 13. This is after he had washed their feet. So when he had washed their, th their feet, taking his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. They should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know, so often we talk about the servant not being greater than his master. We talk about persecution and things he went through. But it's also in regards to everything he just did. And him, the Lord of all, was willing to stoop down and wash the feet of disciples, their dirty, filthy feet, then we ought to be willing to be servants to each other as well. Um, I don't necessarily think it means you need to wa literally wash each other's feet. That, that can be done. It's a humbling thing to do. I've done it before myself. Um, but in our hearts, we ought to be washing each other's feet, at the least. At the least. Some people would say this is one of the... Uh, things that Christ left us to do besides baptism and communion. He also left us to do this too. I'm not convinced of that, but either way, we're to be humble and be like these little children. And whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So Jesus is the head of the body of Christ, so he's talking about these little children now who have believed in him and they're a part of the body of Christ. That's what he's referring to. They're a part of the body of Christ. On the contrary, if you don't receive him, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. And so, this millstone here, now there's one word in the Greek, I don't know why they didn't do this, that's not even translated here. Uh, in the Greek, you see the Greek word mulos, which means millstone. And there are different kinds of millstones. There's millstones you turn by hand which are a lot smaller, and there are ones that donkeys and animals turned, which are much larger. Those ones are probably four to five feet in diameter, and they're probably about that thick. So very heavy, very big stones. And the other word you see here is anikos, which is, means donkey. So millstone donkey is what it says here. It's one of the large millstones. And so you can imagine if you were in a boat, and someone attached a large millstone, four to five feet in diameter, this thick, to your neck, that you could not remove and threw you overboard. How are you gonna? What's going to happen to you? You're going to drown. You're, I mean, you might as well even bother trying to swim. You're not going to be able to do it. Uh, I mean, John, you were in the Navy, and you, you were had to tread water for so long without that kind of stuff on you. Imagine if you had a millstone you had to hold on to while you're trying to tread water. He would, it, yeah, it just closes as hard. Or your rucksack or your gun or whatever it may be that military has when they jump into water. We're talking about a large millstone. I don't know how much these things weighed. I couldn't find the information on that, but they were large. It took animals to move them. Okay, so this is one of those large millstones, not one of those little ones you turn by hand to grind up some, uh, some, some grain. We're talking about a large millstone, four to five feet in diameter, about that thick tied around someone's neck. Now this is, from what I understand from Barnes' commentary, this is actually a form of capital punishment. 
used by the Greeks this, and, and the Romans. And so, they were the people who Jesus was speaking to were, were very familiar with the disciples. They, they knew what he was talking about. And so what he's saying here is you're better off dying an excruciating death by capital punishment, by drowning, than causing a little one to sin. Because what the danger is, is what we'll see in a second, is hellfire for causing a little one to sin. Now, we're talking about a little one that believes in him now. Okay? Now, I wouldn't say that you couldn't say that if you cause someone who doesn't believe in him who's a little child to sin, that you still wouldn't be in trouble. I wouldn't go that. But specifically what it's referring to here is those who believe in him and little children who believe in him. Now, what are some ways um, you could cause a little child to sin who believes in him? What's some ways you can cause a little child to sin who believes in him? Lying to them, yeah. Teaching them, teaching them false teaching. Yeah. Teaching them about Santa Claus. Very good, Malachi. Because if, if they if they find out Santa Claus is in the midst someday, and you're this whole two or three months of your year, every year was surrounded around this figure who doesn't exist. What are they going to think about the stuff he teaches the rest of the time? They're not question it all. That might happen with all of them, but it could happen. For lying to them, teaching them false things. How about putting temptation in their life? That they, that they shouldn't have in the first place. Being a bad example for them. Not teaching them to live a certain way, but showing them by the way you're living it. That can cause them to stumble, to sin. How about letting them develop bad habits? Letting them develop bad habits, not disciplining them properly when they do these things? That's not loving for little children. On the other side, not giving them the love they need, not giving them the grace they need, not giving them the compassion they need. Anytime my children do something wrong, not every time, but a lot of times, I'm reminded of how much wrong I've done against God. And how merciful he's been towards me. And it leads me to be more compassionate towards him. Not that I'm saying I'm not going to discipline them when they need it, but it leads me to be more compassionate towards them and not be so hard on them. If God's been so good to me and so gracious and compassionate and forgiving to me, then surely I should be the same to my children. And so that doesn't neg- negate discipline. So causing one of these little children to sin. Now, we see here, woe to the man by whom the offense comes, or the causing to sin comes, the stumbling comes. I believe it's the Greek word scandalizomai, as you've seen before in the parable of the sower. <coughs> that you're actually, we see here, and, and talking about the hand and the foot and the eye. Now, we've seen that before in Matthew 5, 29-30. And there, it was talking about you personally sinning yourself. Now, it's talking about you causing someone else to sin by using your hand, your foot, or your eye. Okay, so uh, still the same problem, though. Still the same result. Still the same consequence. But as we talked about, I think we talked about this last time we, we saw this in Matthew 5, 29-30, does cutting off your hand stop you from sinning? Plucking out your eye? Cutting off your foot? So is this, is this something we should take literally or interpret literally? No, it's just hyperbole. 
Let's go to Romans 6 for a second. <coughs> Verse 12. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments as righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave to whom you obey, whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which you were delivered, having been set free from, from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So there's this presenting, there's these members, these instruments, that's what your body is. Your, your hand, your foot, your eye, are all instruments controlled by your heart, by your will, to be used for righteousness or unrighteousness, to be presented for sin or for holiness. <clears throat> so cutting off one of these instruments is not going to stop it. You take a knife away from a knife murderer, it's not going to stop him from knife murder. It's not going to stop the murder in his heart. He'll find another instrument to use to kill someone with. He has murder in his heart. Uh, you take someone who loves to, who has an idolatry of sports, you take a basketball away from him, guess what? They're going to find another instrument to, to unleash their idolatry on. You take uh, a Budweiser away from someone who loves their drunkenness, They'll find some other way of getting drunk. They love their drunkenness. Their heart is the problem. Not their hand, not their foot, not their eye. And we see this in Matthew 15. <coughs> Jesus speaking here. Verse 18. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart, which is where all sin starts, proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. So all sin comes from the heart. The, the hand, the foot, and the eye are simply extensions of what the heart wills to do. That's it. It's like any amoral instrument is. An extension of what your heart wills to do. <clears throat> and so we are to watch what we do with our instruments because they can put us in danger of hellfire by not doing what we should with our instruments. How many eyes, how many spiritual eyes does each person have? Who said, someone said one? That's right. That's right. So, if you're plucking out that one eye, you don't really have much left. But the eye we should be focused on is upon Jesus. We see that in Matthew uh, 6, 22 through 23. Okay, in verse 10 through 14, we see that in contrast to people despising little ones, that they should look upon them as the example, once again, that Jesus is giving for believers, for people who are going to believe in him. And he gives three reasons why you shouldn't despise little ones. Three very good reasons. First reason, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, please. <clears throat> Let's see what 
the role of angels is in this world in Hebrews 1.14. Now, I, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews you know, on this discourse about the Son and the angels and the comparison between the two and how the angels are, are lower than Jesus and the things that were said of Jesus that weren't said of the angels. And then in Hebrews uh, 1.14, after he says... In verse 13, But to which the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is verse 14, Are not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to, for those who will inherit salvation? So will inherit is referring back to verse 13, when all the enemies of Christ will be made his footstool, which happens when? The millennial reign. The beginning of the millennial reign. That is coming. That's correct. And so we will inherit salvation then. <coughs> That's when we inherit salvation. Now we have the deposit. The guarantee, now, as Ephesians talks about, but we don't have the whole kick and caboodle yet. It's then we will inherit. And what is our inheritance? The New Jerusalem. That's some heaven in the sky. We float around like uh, formless spirits. Or we strum some harps with some wings on our clouds. You know, we're in diapers and we're back to baby form. That's not, that's not what we're, that's not our inheritance. Okay? That's Gnosticism. Because Gnosticism says that our flesh, our bodies, are sinful in of themselves. God never says that. God says our bodies are instruments. But Gnosticism teaches that your body is filthy, wicked, and this dualism, your spirit and body, and the body is wicked, the spirit's holy, you can sin all you want with your body because it doesn't make a difference with your spirit, your body can get rid of it someday, and you go float in the outer space somewhere, I don't know where it is, into heaven, and you'll be with God forever. That's what the Bible teaches, friends. You will have an earthly body you will live in forever and ever. That's a glorified body. Not subject to sickness and disease, etc., and death. But you'll live in a body forever. Jesus is in his glorified body. When he came after he rose from the grave, didn't he show Thomas the marks in his, in his hands, and in his side, and in his feet? I, I think he still has those. But the, these, these spirits are sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. So those who are saved, those who believe, these little ones who are believing right here, as we see in Matthew 18, have angels. You have angels who are ministering to you. You may not know about it, but they are. You know, I often wonder when we get to eternity if we're going to be able to see some kind of like movie of our life and saw how many times God was working that we didn't even know about it. How many times when we were driving to the thing we could have gotten an accident and God somehow just protected us and stopped us. And you know, it, it's it's actually biblical to pray. You know, Lord, send your angels to protect them. Because we these little ones, these little ones have angels, and Hebrews one forty says that those who inherit salvation, that's who angels are ministering to. Then surely we have angels too who are ministering to us, whether we know it or not. And so one of the first reasons Jesus gives not to despise these little ones, besides get, making them the example of what you must become to enter the kingdom, he says, look, they have angels watching out for them, and if I've considered them so important that I will send angels to watch after them. Why are you despising them? You should not despise them. And then we see in verse 11, the second reason. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. So we have angels, now we have the Son of Man. He came to shed his blood for them. He came to shed his blood for them. And that, that's a good enough reason for me. Christ shed his blood for these little ones who believe in him. And that's, we shouldn't despise them. It's, it's grieves my heart when I see parents 
consider their children an inconvenience or a hassle or a burden. Bug rats. It's usually the parents' fault. Yep. It's come to that point. The children are a blessing from the Lord. Not a burden. Not an inconvenience. Not a trouble. And if we raise them properly, they won't be. Verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek after the one astraying? If he should find it, surely I say to you, he rejoices more over that, that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. And so Jesus is saying, um, I seek after them. I seek after them. I die for them. I seek after them. Not only that, there's rejoicing in heaven. And the scriptures say that the heaven rejoice over more over one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine who need no repentance. So all heaven rejoiced over these little ones who come to repentance. So why, why should we despise them? And then finally, the third reason in verse fourteen is the Father. Even so, it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So the three reasons are the angels, the Son, and the Father. And if they don't despise the, these little ones, how dare we despise little ones? And, you know, this whole passage is in complete opposite of Calvinism. They're not children of wrath. They're not born sinners. Uh, they... Yeah, Ephesians 2 does say that. Yeah, it does say that. But they would assert that that's talking about your birth, or in birth. Which it doesn't say in that passage in Ephesians 2. It talks about the way someone walked, and that's how they were children of wrath. And they were that way, which means they aren't that way anymore. Right, it even talks about things like that. Yeah. And so we see that th- this is in con- complete contradiction to Calvinism. The children are the example. We're to be like them and humble ourselves like them and become converted and be like them. Otherwise, we won't enter the kingdom. Now, if they're sinners and depraved and, and children of wrath, why should we become like them? To enter the kingdom? That doesn't make any sense. And Jesus died for them, all of them. And it's not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Not one. Not one. You know, there's this one example of when... Uh, the disciples got kind of got a Calvinistic spirit one time uh, in Luke, and uh, we'll see what Jesus said to them about that. And this is the same thing I would I would say to Calvinists sometimes when they spew forth their their doctrine. You see in Luke nine uh, verses fifty one through fifty six that the Samaritans did not receive them. In verse fifty three did not receive them because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. The disciples, James and John, saw this, but they were not received by the Samaritans. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. I'll tell you, people who say that it's God's will that most be destroyed, and he's predestined from eternity past, they don't know what spirit they're of. Not of God, because it's not God's will to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That's His will for the lives of men. It's not the will of the Father that any of these little ones perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
that Christ died for all of them. They have angels ministering to them. So this is this is one of the great passages when it comes to how God views little children, in my mind. Uh, you want to know how God views little children? Read Matthew 18, 1 through 14. You can see for yourself. It doesn't support the doctrines I hear from a lot of uh, Christians' mouths these days, professing Christians' mouths. Alright, we'll, uh, we'll stop there. Questions, objections, and things you want to add? Why the Calvinists try to say on verse 14 that not as well as perishing, some might perish as children? Meaning that's kind of the opposite of the... Uh, you mean that they would go? They would go to hell. Yeah. Well, th- these are these are children who've come to the age of accountability because they believe in him. No, this this word uh, pidon could be is used of babies. It's used of baby Jesus, baby John the Baptist, uh, but it's also used of children who were healed. It's that boy we talked about last week who was healed of his epilepsy, which is what they called it. The Mark version of that calls him a pidon. So this little child could walk. They walked up to him. Okay, and it believed in him, so it has the ability to believe. So it must come to a state of accountability to be able to believe in Jesus. So you know, this can be different for every person, but they have come to the state of accountability to understand these things enough to be able to believe in him. Yeah. So it, people who've come to that point, it's not his will that any of them should perish. Yeah. What about an objection they might try to use the verse before, just in any any type of idea? The fact that he uses sheep and he says. Well, sheep just means those who follow him, who follow the shepherd's voice. Well, he does say they are sheep of another fold. Yeah, and that that's the Gentiles. Yeah, so he, he is sheep from another fold besides the Jews. I mean, he came to minister to Jews. We know that, and that's what he's ministering to here, ministering to the disciples. But. Um, if one of his sheep go astray, he's going to go after it. That's the point here. It's not his will that any should perish. I mean, that, that goes against Calvinism, too. Well, they, I would think they would just try to say that, well, I'm one of his sheep, he's coming after me. Then. He goes after somebody that's his sheep. Mm-hmm. That's one of the ones they elect that would try to say. So that's what I'm trying to see what they would do. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I'm sure they'd probably try to read that into this, but they're not going to find... I mean, that's not, even, that's not even talking about that. That's not even the discussion here. Maybe the subject that's being discussed. <coughs> One thing I, I, I wanted to read this uh, before we go on any further here with the questions or objections. We're reading this <coughs> book called The Callous Knees. It's about a guy named John Smith. That was his nickname, Callous Knees. <coughs> and he tells this uh, story when he was ministering one time. And um, I just want to read this to you real quick. This, this will kind of give you, I think, a good idea. I was reading this last night, so it's kind of ironic I read this for this teaching tonight today. I'll give you an idea of uh, childlike faith. The preacher who is in earnest to win souls will make every effort to do so, though tired body and home comforts may plead with him. A preacher came home late, very tired, and had gone to bed to seek needed rest. The friend with whom he boarded awoke him out of his first refreshing sleep and informed him a little girl wanted to see him. Said she, I turned impatiently over in my bed and said, I am very tired. Tell her to come in the morning and I will see her. My friend soon returned and said, I think you had better get up. The girl is a poor little suffering thing. She is thinly clad, is without bonnet or shoes. 
She has seated herself on the doorstep and says she must see you and will wait till you get up. So I dressed myself and opening the outside door I saw one of the most forlorn looking little girls I'd ever beheld. Want, sorrow, suffering, neglect seemed to struggle for the mastery. She looked up to my face and said, Be you the man that preached last night and said that Christ could save to the uttermost? Yes, I said. Well, I was there, and I want you to come right down to my house and try to save my poor father. What's the matter with your father? He's a very good father when he don't drink. He's out of work, and he drinks awfully. He almost killed my poor mother, but if Jesus can save to the uttermost, he can save him. I want you to come right now to our house now. I took my hat and followed my little god, who trotted on before, halting as she turned the corner to see what it, that I was coming. Oh, what a miserable den her home was. A low, dark, underground room, the floor all slush and mud, not a chair, table, or bed to be seen, a bitter cold night, and not a spark of fire on the hob. In the room not only cold, but dark. In the corner, on a little dirty straw, lay a woman. Her head was bound up, and she was moaning, as if in agony. As we darkened the doorway, a feeble voice said, Oh, my child, my child, why have you brought a stranger into this horrible place? Her story was a sad one, but soon told. Her husband, out of work, maddened with drink, and made desperate, had stabbed her because she did not provide him with a supper that was not in the house. He was then upstairs, and she was expecting every moment that he would come down and complete the bloody work he had begun. While the conversation was going on, the fiend made his appearance. A fiend he looked. He brandished the knife, still wet with the blood of his wife. The missionary, like the man among the tombs, had himself belonged to the desperate classes. He was converted at the mouth of a coal pit. He knew the disease and the remedy, knew how to handle a man on the borders of delirium tremens. Subdued by tender tones, the madman calmed down and took a seat on a box. But a talk was interrupted by the little girl, who approached the missionary and said, Don't talk to Father. It won't do any good. If talking would have saved him, he would have been saved long ago. Mother has talked to him so much and so good. You must ask Jesus, who saves to the uttermost, to save my poor, my poor father. Rebuked by the faith of the little girl, the missionary and the miserable sinner knelt down together. He prayed as he never prayed before. He entreated and interceded in tones so tender and fervent that it melted the desperate man who cried for mercy, and mercy came. He bowed in penitence before the Lord and lay down to sleep that night on his pallet of straw, a pardoned soul. Relief came to that dwelling. The wife was lifted from her dirty couch, and her home was made comfortable. On Sunday, the reformed man took the hand of his little girl and entered the infant class at Sunday school to learn something about the Savior who saves to the uttermost. He entered upon a new life. His reform was thorough. He found good employment, for when sober, he was an excellent workman. And next to his Savior, he blesses God for the faith of his little girl, who believed in a Savior who was able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by him. That's the faith of a child. That's the kind of faith we ought to have. So I just thought I would share that with you. All right. Does anyone else have any questions or objections or things they want to add? Yeah, I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, though. I listened like okay. the first 10 minutes or so. Oh, really? He pronounced it wrong. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, you call it Pahedion. Yeah, Pahedion. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I looked at. That's their, you know, people try to interpret how it's supposed to be pronounced. Right. Yeah, the Alpha and the Yoda is a, it's called a diphthong, and so you sound it together. 
pi don. And the omega is, is an O, long O in sound, so it would be pi don. So when, uh, when they put their, their uh, pronunciations next to things, uh, those, are not, those are not always accurate? No, no, they're not. No. Somebody's, uh, <coughs> <laughs> it's not pretty cool. It's not pretty, it's not pretty cool. Right, right. Well, that's, how, that's what they put. They had a P-A-H-E-E-V-I-O-N. Really? Yeah. Was that like a concordance or something like that, or a Strong's or? Yeah. First, second one is one I have. Which is probably a good thing because they that's shows humility, you know, thinking about themselves. That's another example of that. Even though they are an example in a lot of ways. I mean think about how forgiving they are too. I mean someone wrongs us, we sometimes we're slow to forgive or we're kinda okay, I'll forgive you, you know, that kind of thing. You know, I do something wrong with my son, I apologize to him. Okay, Dad, no problem. I never thought I never thought about it. It's like it never uh, ever happened. The way it should be.
Really? That's what they're doing there? Yeah, they call it they call it good vibes. You see they they they're sneaky about it because there's no there's no drugs, no alcohol. Well that's good, yeah, no drugs, no alcohol. No weapons? Well that's great. Safe place for my children. And if I would have said no sin, then I might feel a little more comfortable, but it doesn't say that. There's definitely some sin going on there. <laughs>